Love Talk Radio. I was sitting here waiting for the Blog Talk Radio to come on. As I told you guys out there in Blog Talk Radio lands on Saturday's show, you know, we normally do our show on Saturdays at 11 a.m. We did our Saturday show where we had Paulette Harper on. And then today we're doing a bit of a change, and we're also having a Monday show, and we this is a topic that you don't want to miss. It's a very important topic. It, it, there probably isn't a family that it doesn't impact. Uh, you, you hear that there's actually a story on the cover of Time magazine that deals with this topic. It impacts children, teenagers, adults. So I encourage you, there's still time for you to catch the show in its entirety, and whether it's you, a relative, or a friend, and you can d- dial into the show at 347-994-3490. Again, that's 347-994-3490. Or you can come in through the chat room, iTunes. There are several different ways, of course, to connect to Off This Shelf uh, Radio. And to our loyal listeners, this, we've had a show on similar, one other show similar to this before, and it got a lot, a lot of, a lot of uh, listeners, a lot of people appreciated that show. So there's still time, again, for you to dial in, 347-994-3490. You can tell your friends and everybody to come on over to Off the Shelf Radio. But I want to welcome you guys to our Monday, November 14th show. This is our first weekday 7 p.m. show, I have to tell you. So it's exciting, and thank you so much for joining us. We have an awesome Arthur, this is a nonfiction topic. We do a lot of novels here on Off the Shelf, but this is nonfiction. I'm really excited to introduce our guest to you. But before I do, I just want to drop this into your into your mind, something for you to think about. And this quote is from Vernon Howard, and the quote goes, A truly strong person does not need the approval of others any more than a lion needs the approval of sheep. And that, again, is a truly strong person does not need the approval of others any more than a lion needs the approval of sheep. And that is from Vernon Howard. I I do want to encourage you all. I actually just came out of my website not too long ago to get a copy of my latest book, Love Pour Over Me. And what every book isn't for everybody. The book we're going to talk about with our special guest, I think, is for everybody. So I'll, I'll put a note on that one because, again, I don't think a, there's a family that's not impacted by the topic we're going to discuss tonight. But Love for Over Me is a is a fictional book, and it's a it's a it's Raymond Clark's story. And he starts out in Dayton, Ohio. He goes to college in Pennsylvania. It's, it's his four friends that he meets, and they're from all different parts of the country. And one of his friends is from Italy as well. They go on to do extremely well with one of them uh, becoming a star player in the NFL. But then in their business and in their personal lives, they do well. But Raymond's childhood is very challenging. His father has untreated alcoholism, and his mom left him when he was two years old. And that, that shapes him. It leaves a really deep imprint on him. When he's in college, he meets the the woman he's supposed to spend the rest of his life with. But what do you do when you your whole childhood has taught you to be afraid of love? What do you do then? Do you just do you just give in? So you see how Raymond's father, how all of them start out in the book. Most readers hate his father at the start, but as you get through the book, the same way in our lives, you see how they all help to shape and change each other. And again. I encourage you to get a copy. There's also a mystery tucked in love pour over me that I think of. See if you can figure out who done it before I reveal it in the book. But if you don't see it on the shelves, it's an ebook and in print form. If you don't see it on the shelves, just ask the clerk. Say you would like to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney. You can get it through our website at chistel.com, c h i s t e l l dot com. Ebook it, Barnes and Noble, Amazon.com, Walmart. Again, if you don't see it on the shelves, ebook and in print form. Just tell them you want a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney. And I hope you get a copy, whether you get one for somebody as a holiday gift or just treat yourself or both and let me know how you enjoy Love Pour Over Me. And now let us go and meet our very special guest. I, I've been looking forward to this to this interview, and I really thank our guest today for writing this book. I was talking to our guest on Saturday, 
she actually wrote a book that was then this is now after she got divorced she was struggling with the depression and how we hide hide it and she said nobody knew she was really really struggling hard with it and nobody knew so it's it's good when we take the shame away and we take the lid off and we see just how many people in the millions are struggling with this and it needs to come out and then different signs to look for how we can help ourselves our children our loved ones uh, i think about domestic violence a lot of people who commit that might be struggling with a form of mental illness or depression, and that's just the outlet that they think will help uh, solve the problem. So our special guest today is Linda Naomi Katz, and what a beautiful name. Now, Linda is a mental health advocate. She is a college graduate, a wife, a writer, and she's the author of the book Surviving Mental Illness. And I encourage you to visit Linda online at survivingmentalillness.com. And it's, it's spelled the way it sounds, but it has some hyphens in it. So it's S-U-R-V-I-V-I-N-G hyphen, M-E-N-T-A-L hyphen, I-L-L-N-E-S-S dot com, surviving hyphen mental hyphen illness dot com. But if you look her up in Google, she'll, she'll come up, Surviving Mental Illness by Linda Naomi Katz. So we want to welcome Linda. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Linda. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's it's great to have you with us here on Off the Shelf. Now, this is a question that I ask every guest who comes on our show so we can give our listeners a little backstory on the guests before we go into the questions. But can you tell us where you grew up, uh, like the city and the state, and what life was like for you growing up? Uh, what I do in this City in the state? You mean oh, where, my where you grew up? Like when, you were, when you were a little girl, where were you born? Oh, where were you okay. Born in um, I was born in Flushing, New York, but I lived as a child in Baldwin, Long Island. My father was a principal at a synagogue in South Baldwin, and... My mother worked for a number of years as a secretary, and we grew up very happily. And when I was 10, my mother um, developed a mental illness, acute depression, and it was a very rough time for us and my mother hated to take her medications. There were awfully huge fights, and she had to be hospitalized twice. And um, there were times that my mother frightened me as a child, and I did not understand what was going on with her. I did not know anything about mental illness back then. And if someone had told me or I had read a story about a parent with mental illness, maybe I would have been able to be less afraid of my mother. So, and so, you know, and and her illness left a great impact on that, on me. I could not make any friends. I could not invite people over. And socially, as I grew up, I became more depressed. And throughout high school and college, I grew up that way. And when in college, I developed an infatuation over a boy um, who didn't feel the same way about me. And I was, re I thought I was in love with him, and I really was real down when he didn't talk to me for three weeks. 
And and after I graduated college and started looking for work in the business world, um, that's when my life started to completely go down because um, I couldn't get a job and no one was really hiring me or interviewing me and the jobs I took were in cutthroat environments. Um, One environment, they hired me and fired me in three days. And their answer was that I was too slow. And it was a really tough time. And all of a sudden, the depression got worse. And then... All of a sudden, I'm developing manic symptoms. I developed psychotic symptoms. I heard voices. I had racing thoughts going through my head. I was talking for a mile in a minute. I was overly joyous. Um, I heard voices of the boy that I had liked in college. And I thought I heard him telling me we were going to get engaged and I was going to have his five children. So, um, you know, so I was 24 years old when that happened. And my father noticed that I was mentally sick because he experienced with my mother. So he took me to my mother's psychiatrist, and he diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. Ah, and you know what? Thankfully, your father got you help, because a lot of people self-medicate. I have to ask you, Linda, so when you were a little girl, let's say before you turned 12, what did you dream of becoming when you were a child? Some people want to grow up and be a doctor, some people want to grow up and be a writer like me. But what did you dream of becoming when you were when you were a kid? Believe it or not, a teacher. Ah. I wanted to be a teacher, but when I when I started to be an assistant teacher at my father's Hebrew school, I realized that I lacked a quality in me. And that was authority, disciplinarian. And I could control a classroom of 30 students. Okay. And I realized that at that time. And I always thought of being a teacher, but Ah. how to... Well, now you're teaching... Now you are teaching. You're teaching about. Yes. Now I am teaching. Yes, you are. Now, is it true that mental illness, is it true that it generally exhibits? And and one thing I have to say, because I've had people in my family who've had mental illness, one thing is the person is still the person. That I couldn't stress enough to to someone. It's like somebody who has high blood pressure or whatever. The illness doesn't define the person. The person is still the person. But I wanted to ask you, is it true that mental illness, does it generally exhibit, show its symptoms between the teens and 20s? So let's say somebody's listening to Off the Shelf and they have a child and they're concerned about them. Is it true that it generally exhibits symptoms when a person is in between their teens and 20s? Uh In most cases, it happens when you're in your teens and 20s, but sometimes it can happen when you're an adult in the middle of your life, and like in your late 40s. I mean, that's what happened with my mother. Uh, Also, your mother didn't have no symptoms, and then she... Do you, you, uh, when you look back on it, because just my studies with... uh, psychology, do you think it was something 
biological going on with her? She didn't have a brain injury, or was she going through, do you think, menopause, something uh, chemical that was affecting her brain, do you think, caused it, or stress? I know hormones can also more cause the stress she couldn't handle. Um, um, she couldn't balance family life and work. She hated to work. Um, her, my grandfather, her father, kept calling her at work and told her you shouldn't be working and so forth. He. And my father, I think even he had a mental illness. My grandfather, sorry. My grandfather, even he had a mental illness. But nobody diagnosed him. Nobody saw anything. Only after he suffered the stroke, then I realized my grandfather may also have something mentally wrong with him. And, you know. Um, Why do you think, can I, can I ask you this? Are there any signs, now Now that you look back on your grandfather and people didn't know, uh, your mom in her 40s, uh, is, are there any signs that people can look for in themselves or getting a child or somebody that they care for that maybe they could talk to them. Before you answer, this just popped into my mind. I went to a conference several years ago, and they had a topic on there, and this was like women who tend to be very strong women. They they take care of the family by themselves. They might be a single parent. They're working a full-time job. And there were two women there who said they were like that, go-getters, I mean just high-chargers. And they one said all of a sudden out of the blue, she just stopped going outside. She said, I can't explain it. She said, I just, like, closed the curtains. I didn't go out no more. I was a hard charger, a go-getter. I didn't go out. And she said a friend came and got her, and it wasn't until she got help. And I figured how long, maybe 30 days or more, she just stopped going out. She said that she she didn't even know she was depressed. Her friend said, come on, let's go get some help. And she realized she was depressed. But both of these women said they didn't even know they were depressed. They just suddenly I'm not going outside, and you go a whole month and you don't go out, and you're normally going out, that a friend comes over and says, come on, let's go somewhere, let's go talk. Mm-hmm. But are there signs other than that? You suddenly just don't want to go outside. You don't want to talk on the phone. You don't want to see nobody. In 30 days, you're just sitting in the house. You might not have taken a bath or a shower in weeks. Are there any other signs that people can look for that they can say, let me go get some help? Yeah, there are plenty of signs. Um, you know, if you feel like if you feel like the world's coming to an end, or if you feel like so depressed, so down that you can't even focus or concentrate or make any type of decision in life. And and if it seems why you're not getting a job, why you're not working, why isn't nobody hiring me? Um, why am I not married? Why the child? You know, a lot of these things play into someone's mind. Because they want to be normal just like everybody else. And they can't believe that the worst thing is happening to them that they didn't want. And it's, you know, and these things, these doubts, these things that you have, you need to talk them to someone like a therapist. Before yes. it gets out of control, and if you don't go to ask for help, you're going to be in great danger, not just to does yourself, get, but maybe to other people around you. Does it, if you don't get help, Linda, 
because there's a lot of shame around it. So that's why I'm glad we're talking about this. A lot of people are just embarrassed. Some people are, are also embarrassed of physical diseases. That's why some people don't go to the doctor because they mm-hmm. don't want the doctor to tell them they got diabetes or high blood pressure. So they just say, I just won't go. So it's not just mental illness. Some people also don't want to, they just don't want to deal with the physical illness either. So I, 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 when, when, you, when you think about that shame, uh, and how the the rewards of facing it. If you don't talk to somebody, if you don't get help, Linda, does the disease stay the same or does it get worse? If you don't get help, it could get worse. You know, okay. yes, they 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 have they see that the stigma of mental illness is there. And they fear it, and they don't want they they don't want the worst thing in the world to happen to them, and they think that oh well, I'm very strong, I'm not like my my friend who has a mental illness, or I'm not like my sister who has a mental illness. She is the weak one. I am the strong one. So, Mm. I mean, it can be very, very hard for them to accept. Yeah. Did you try to hide it? I know you said you you didn't know at first. You were hearing voices and different things. Did you think that this is something that everybody goes through? Because sometimes we have experiences. I've heard children, for example, who've been abused, they just assume everybody's going through this. And it's not until they get out around other people and they hear other people talking that they're like, wait Mm -hmm. a minute, this doesn't happen in every home. Did you think this happens to everybody? Everybody, I'm distressed, this is why it's happening. Or did you know right away something's wrong? I... I didn't I didn't know what was happening to me. I thought it was completely normal of what I was going through. Uh I didn't even remember the first time I went to my mother's psychiatrist. So, uh you know, I I did not have the time to even Think of denying that I had a mental illness like my mother. But I do remember one visit with my mother's psychiatrist. I said to him, great, I'm like my mother. And he says, you are not your mother. You are you. And those words really got to me. Really hit home. Okay. What is the difference, Linda? We hear so much, and again, I think on Time Magazine, let's see, uh, we're we're giving our kids at younger ages mind drugs for ADHD and uh, attention deficiency disorders, and I wonder what impact that's going to have two to three generations from now, because some of these drugs are extremely strong, and we're giving them to kids three, four years old, but before I go into that, what is the difference between a mental illness and a mood disorder? You know, some people may say, I just, I'm moody a lot. What is what is the difference between a mood disorder and a mental illness? Well, a mood disorder is a mental illness. And a mood disorder could, there are, there are, two different cases of mood disorders. There's depression, there's chronic depression, and there's bipolar or manic depression when you have your highs and your lows. So these two are considered mood disorders. It's like an elevation of your mood. Your mood can all of a sudden be very down, so sad. And then one of these days, your mood could be so up in the sky. 
So uh, it's like a roller coaster ride you're yeah, on. And, and in between, go ahead. No, I'm saying, and that's what happens when your mood fluctuates. Are there periods in between where it's it's, it's normal? It's normalized where things are normal. Oh yeah. You know, there are periods when you'll be normal, and there are days when you'll be down, and there are days when you'll be up. So, um, but, you know, you try to live a normal life as possible. Mm-hmm. Linda, what inspired you to sit down and write Surviving Mental Illness? And how long had you been diagnosed when you actually sat down to write the book Surviving Mental Illness? Oh, um, uh, um, I wrote Surviving Mental Illness. I started writing the book a year after my father passed away. And okay. I and I um and I wanted to write it so I could educate the public but more so I had a selfish reason. I didn't have any chi- I don't have any children in my life and I wanted to be remembered I couldn't give a child the legacy, so I wanted to be remembered. So I thought writing a book, people of all different kinds of the country, of the world, could read my book, and that way I could get retain my legacy. So that's a big reason. And how many years? Oh, probably... 25 years, 30 years. Wow. Okay. Okay, now, I have to ask you this. Again, I know people who've dealt with mental illness and their loved ones try to get them help. In in today's system, you know, and then this might come from years ago when people tried to force people or they say so-and-so's mentally ill, then they take power of attorney, and they start spending the person's money. So now there are laws to try to protect people like they protect the elderly, and, they, and you can't just put anybody in a mental institution. Uh, you, you just can't do that. But let's say there's a parent or, or, or a spouse, they know the person's sick, and they're struggling to get them help, and the person's saying, no, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go. And they might even become violent if you try to pressure them. What What are some things that parents and loved ones can do to help people dealing with mental illness, number one, get help and stick with treatment? Um, well, I have this, I have a problem right now with my sister trying to get her help, and she will not go. She's in extreme denial, was hospitalized six times, I tried every way to get her help, but she wouldn't listen to me. And now my relationship is at a crossroads with her. And, you know, that I sometimes um, I was concerned about how all of this was affecting my own mental health and that fighting with her all the time was not worth it. And uh, and uh, all of a sudden, it was Rosh Hashanah and I had these obsessive thoughts growing inside me about her and so much hatred where I really didn't hate her but I really hated what her illness was doing uh, to me 
and you know it it was very hard so you know i i would you know try to get them help in as best way as possible but if it's going to start affecting your mental health then sometimes you may have to let go and and let them make the mistakes that they want to make and you know what that's a hard one and I'm still trying to learn that one you know what that is and that goes for people who deal with people with addictions whether it's alcoholism or drug addiction or some people uh, uh whether it's anorexia nervosa bulimia you know the person is on a dangerous road and sometimes like you said it it'll take you down you just have to i can only imagine how hard that would be particularly for a parent or somebody to see somebody struggling like that and you're like i have to let go because they they're not they won't accept the help but are there some places do you, are you aware of any resources where people can call so let's say somebody's having a crisis and maybe it's the first one they've had do you take them to the emergency room what would you advise somebody to do yeah um first thing i would do is if it's really that bad and they'll and if you can convince them to go on there voluntarily to the hospital then that's where you should take them but if then not listening to you um and they're really fighting it and fighting it and fighting it and they don't are in such denial you could try to go to court but oh but uh, and there's something called assisted outpatient treatment that's where the patient is court ordered for treatment uh-huh. a judge decides Oh, okay. Now, I tried to get my sister a OT, assisted outpatient treatment, but she's got these lawyers and judges, and they're being fooled by her, and they are somehow being led to believe her because she's not like one of those people who is a danger to other people all the time. She's not like that. And so, you know, there are other ways you could go about it. Um, But if it doesn't, but if either of those ways does not work in the end, then you have to let go. It's hard. It's not easy, but, you know, if you can get the person to go see a psychiatrist because they want to, that is good. Let me ask you this also. Go ahead. No, I'm finished. I wanted to ask you this also for our off-the-shelf listeners. So let's psychiatrists and Psychologists are not cheap. So let's say somebody wants to get help, but they're they're like, I don't have enough money to afford the therapy. Are there any resources for people in those situations? Uh, yeah. Um, there are most uh, psychiatrists and therapists do things on a sliding scale. Um. Some some you can bargain with them with them on fees and they will lower it. Or you can get Medicaid and Medicaid will help out a great big deal. 
Um, ah, okay. So, um, and the, and if you can get Social Security disability and you don't work during the two years that you're considered disabled, you can get Medicare, and having that would help a lot. Okay. So there are ways that um, that you can make it less affordable. Okay, and that's good to know. And there may be like if you, somebody went to a hospital, they may the the local hospital may know even of other resources. Even if uh, I know some areas have low cost or free group therapy. Now, if somebody is really needing a lot of help, they might need more than that. But that's that is also another option. And then you could ask the person leading the group therapy where you could get even more help. It's better to get help than to walk around afraid of yourself. Uh, and so you want to love yourself and not be afraid of yourself and start to understand what's going on with you and uh, do do treatments. That said, I do know one of the reasons that some people do not want to go to a psychiatrist, they don't want the they don't want to take the meds because some people <laughs> know people who've taken mental health medications and they've gained a lot of weight. And then some people say they feel lethargic all the time, almost like they have the flu all the time. They just don't like how they feel. Are there any – what advice would you give to somebody who says, I don't like how the, the meds make me feel? What advice would you give to somebody? Is there anything they can do to help alleviate some of the symptoms of the, of the medications? Well, yes, I would – First, every first of all, every medication has side effects. So if one of these side effects is bothering you, you need to talk to your psychiatrist right away. And I would not recommend stopping the medication on your own. You have to talk to your psychiatrist right away. And okay. that's the most important thing because okay. if, if you feel that medication is not working for you you're the only one that knows how you're feeling that knows your body so talk that, to that your psychiatrist and you you know what I thank you again and you were speaking to Linda Cash she's the author of Surviving Mental Illness because you've been through it and you've you've you 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 you're talking about something that you know firsthand and I just hope the right people tune in to off the shelf and can get their lives back on track cuz honestly if you if to our listeners if you pulled up a list of people who either dealt with depression or bipolar illness or another form of mental illness it might shock you shock you to know how many business leaders how many entertainers how many athletes have dealt with these things? You can still live a productive, happy life, but you you do need to go get help. Just love yourself enough to do that. Now, Linda, the National Library of Madison, National Institutes of Health says that drastic life changes that have occurred over the last century are fueling chronic diseases and our social connections. We used to have face-to-face connections. Now everything's electronic, your cell phone, the internet, your laptop. So you who knows where we're where we're really headed. People often say they feel stressed. They have too much on their plate. There's too much to do. There's too much expectations on them. Do you think the daily things that no, I wanted to ask you this. What are the what are some things that you have found or you could share that anybody listening to off the shelf they could do to help them stay mentally healthy when their their day is so full? Um, there are many things, many ways that recovery is possible. Um, I would say first take your medications, 
Work with a therapist to solve your daily problems. Um, Eat healthy. Exercise. Do something productive with your life. Don't just sit at home and feel miserable. Learn to get up. Um... Um, let's see, um, what else, um, and why, why you're thinking, why, why you're thinking of that, Linda, now, I've heard people say who are dealing with depression, that it's almost impossible to get out of bed, is, is, are there any, any strategies for people who say, I just can't do it, I just can't get up, what advice? would you give to somebody in that situation where they're like, I just can't get out out of bed? Uh, there are times when, you know, you'll have days that you just can't get out of bed. and But if if you sit at home and have nothing to do and nothing being accomplished, you're going to be more depressed than you are. And there were a couple of times when I almost was that way, didn't want to get out of bed, and I was so depressed that I, too, wanted to go into a psychiatric hospital when I'm not depressed. But, you know, if you can force yourself to pick up and get up, because... I know that once my husband mentions the word hospital, I start to get out of it because, you know, that's the last place where I'd want to be is in a hospital because I'd been to a psychiatric hospital and I hated it. So can understand why why a person with a mental illness would not want to go. So Wow. And and, and maybe there the our hospitals need to be and then I know the numbers of the hospitals for the mentally ill have diminished as well. Um hopefully all yeah. this your your book surviving mental illness and other people putting a spotlight on it. We always wait till some tragedy happens and then the People talk about it for a while, then it goes away. But hopefully some real changes and broad changes will happen so that whether it's better hospitals, not just hospitals, because uh, hospitals for the mentally ill have had a long-standing history of just being awful, awful places. So to, to better hospitals more, but, but better that with effective effective treatments. I wanted to ask you now, in surviving mental illness, can you tell us what are the specific types? Because there's several, several types of mental illness. What is what are the specific types that you cover in your book, Surviving Mental Illness? Um, I cover depression, bipolar. I also cover speak about schizophrenia. I talk about its treatments and some resources and organizations that they can go to. Um, I talk about resources like supported employment, um, supported housing, Organizations that promote advocacy work that defend your rights, like NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, I basically also talk about what it's like becoming a peer specialist, and which is what I do. And you can get training as a peer specialist 
peer specialist is a peer, a person like yourself who has mental illness, who wants to help others people with mental illness work on their goals and their recovery and that's what I do now and you also need certification is required so you can take these I took these courses from the Academy of Peer Services and it really helped and I finally got certified and I'm still working, and I'm helping senior citizens now um, get regain strength and establish what goals they want to do. So and you know that that you're you're helping not only yourself but now so many others, and I thank you for that. And I have to ask you for for people who. They may think they need help. They they think something's wrong, but they're afraid of the unknowns. As we all are afraid of the unknown, the, but specifically the unknowns around therapy. They've never been in therapy. They may be afraid they're going to be judged. They may be afraid the doctor's going to tell them, I'm going to put you in a hospital today, and they're scared of that. Can you tell us what happens, Linda, during the first therapy session so it can take some of the fear away from people? Well, the first therapy session is like a getting to know the person, getting the ther- the client to be able to trust the therapist. You know, um, sometimes the client wants to test the therapist, and the therapist has to know the right words, the right Sayings and know how to handle a certain situation. So um, I think it's the first thing is getting to know and making sure that this is the right person who is going to help treat me. So in the first meeting, what are they going <coughs> to, excuse me, ask you questions like, they know your name. Are they going to ask you things like, how old are you? What brings you here today? Um, what's been going on? What, what are the types of questions that, again, for somebody who might be afraid of what happens during that first session, but they may want to get help, what are some of the questions that a therapist asks during that first session? Um. Maybe they want to know your family background. Okay. Maybe uh, they want to know parts about you. Uh, Maybe they want to know what culture you're from. You know, these are questions... uh, that based on your culture, because, I mean, some, like for me, I come from a modern Orthodox Jewish background, and I wanted someone who was also Jewish, who understood where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. So I wanted someone with, who would understand my beliefs. So that may be an area where the patient and where the therapist might be able to work with the patient. Okay. So so that make the first meeting also not only to find out about the person coming seeking therapy, but the the therapist wants to make sure it's a good it's a good match. Another yeah. thing I wanted to I wanted to say here on uh, to our off the shelf listeners, the therapist is going to benefit as much from you as seeking therapy, believe it or not, as you will from the therapist. And as skilled as they are, they're going to you're going to bless them, and they're going to bless you. I know that might not make sense to you now, but that's what that good pairing 
that good pairing does, you're both going to benefit from that relationship if if it's good for you both to work together. And one thing I would say to people, if they go into therapy, you do that work and don't try to, I would encourage people not to try to manipulate the therapist. A good therapist can generally spot that anyway. Had to ask you, Linda, as we come down to the last 10 minutes, did you do research no, 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 this is what I want to Did your research for surviving mental illness, did it teach you about other brain diseases like Alzheimer's? And I'm asking this because I've heard that people with depression, anxiety, et cetera, uh, that, that uh, all these are on the rise. You, you've got depression on the rise, anxiety on the rise, addictions on the rise, Alzheimer's on the rise. Did you, in your studies, come across any research and any link to these diseases, to Alzheimer's? I would have to say no, but I oh. have heard I have heard that as, pe- as seniors grow older, if they have a mental illness, they're more prone to getting Alzheimer's disease. So... Uh, at least that's from what I've heard. So. Okay. Okay, and I, I know definitely because these brain diseases, I think there's a connection for all of them to be on the rise. And then ADHD, attention deficiency in kids, there's something, I don't know if it's in our food, I don't know where it's coming from, but hopefully science will find out because it's increasing for a reason. There's got to be a reason why it's increasing. Uh I wanted to ask you this with just our last few minutes to go. It says somebody with a mental illness tell the person, now you said you're married, should someone with mental illness tell the person that they're dating that they have a mental illness, or sh- or should they wait until the relationship starts to get more serious before they tell the person that? I think they should wait until the relationship gets more serious. Because I, when I was single, I used to have the habit of telling people that I had a mental illness and men would run away from me. And sometimes I told them too soon when I really should have waited. So. Okay. Now, when did you write, we'll briefly talk about your children's book, when and why did you write Peter and Lisa, a children's mental illness story? I wrote Peter and Lisa a a year ago um, because I wanted, I felt that children should be able to understand what an adult is going through when they have mental illness. Like, if I had a book when I was 10 years old, like Peter and Lisa, maybe that would have helped me understood what my mother was going through. Mm. And uh, I think it's really important for parents to read it to children. And I wrote it in a way that in a in a way that the child can understand in their language, um, like you don't underter- understand what a psychiatrist is. A five or six year old is not going to understand the term psychiatrist, but they do understand when it says she's a special doctor who treats people sick in the head. Ah. Uh. Okay, so it's written for children like five, five to six years old. I, I really appreciate. Go ahead. From ages five to eleven. Oh, five to eleven. Five to eleven. I really appreciate the work that you do. Who are some of the other people, Linda, that you've come across who are helping to remove the shame and the secrecy from mental illness, so people can get the help that they need without feeling ashamed. Do you know of any other people who taken the lead on this? Uh, yeah, there are 
there are mental health counselors, there are psychology professors, there are people licensed mental health counselors, social workers, um, so many kinds of people who can help a person with mental illness. Um, um, but I think the most important person to help those with mental illness is to have a peer like themselves. Because they're more understanding, because they have lived through it. Whereas a social worker or psychologist might not necessarily have that lived experience within them. So to to find a peer, if somebody's looking for that, they would first go to a psychologist or psychiatrist. And a psychiatrist off-the-shelf listeners is the one who has the authority to write out the prescriptions, but the right. psychologist or the, or the uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, and then that, that person would pair them up with a peer? Is that how that works? No. Unfortunately, peer specialists work in numerous organizations, oh. um, such as um, psychosocial clubs, um Supported housing programs, um, clubhouses, um, personalized recovery-oriented services, so a bunch of organizations hire peers. But a doctor should be able to at least guide them. An organization yeah. where they can okay. Can you tell our off the shelf listeners, Linda, where they can get a copy of your books, Surviving Mental Mental Illness, and your children's your children's book, Peter and Lisa, a children's mental illness story. Where can they get copies of your books? Yeah, they can get copies of my book through Amazon, Bonjanoble.com. Outskirtspress.com slash bookstore and you can also get it through my website by clicking on any of those and okay. Are you on any social media? And if so, can you let our listeners know where they can find you on Facebook or Twitter or any other social media? If yes, I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash surviving mental illness. And I'm on Twitter, twitter.com slash barren cats. Okay. We are so, so honored and appreciative to have had Linda Naomi Katz here with us on this Monday. Monday evening here on Off the Shelf, and I so enjoyed the show. She was so giving, so so much free advice and free guidance that she gave out here. And this is a show that it'll be in the archives. I, if you listen and you know somebody who could be helped, Linda is has walked this herself personally. So you can just tell them to listen to Off the Shelf to this show, and it might convince somebody. To get help, she wasn't preachy or anything. She was very candid and open, and very caring. And I really appreciate her being here because there are millions of people who struggle in silence. So again, we were honored to have with us Linda Naomi Katz, and she is a mental health advocate. She's a college graduate, a wife, a writer, and she's the author of the book Surviving Mental Illness. And you can visit her online at survivingmentalillness.com. That's S-U-R-V-I-V-I-N-G hyphen. M E N T A L hyphen I L L N E S S dot com. Surviving hyphen mental hyphen illness dot com. And that's again 
Linda Naomi Katz, the author of Surviving Mental Illness. And I encourage you to go out and get a copy of her book, and especially if you or someone you know is struggling with a mental illness. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Love yourself and get the help that you need. We want to thank Linda again for being here with us on Off the Shelf. We want to thank each of you, our listeners. And, again, if you need help with anything, please go love yourself, love yourself, and get the help uh, that you need. And I'll see you back here at Off the Shelf Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you so much, Linda. Bless you. And I will shoot you an email. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.